Thank you, Luke. Good morning again, church. It's such a privilege and an honor to be here with you, not just filling in for Pastor Tim, but just to be gathered together on this wonderful day that the Lord has given to us. Uh, I'm filling in for Pastor Tim as he is away visiting family on vacation uh, and just pray again for his family as uh, they are going through some hardships at this time. Uh, So for those of you I've not yet had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Robbie Mays. I am the Associate Pastor of Campus Ministry here at Big Woods Bible Church. Uh, It is my pleasure to walk with you through the chapter of 11, number 11 in Genesis. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, turn with me there. Before we dive into this, just a few recaps and reminders from last week. Uh, There might have been a little extra tryptophan in your turkey, and as you're still sleeping it off, just want to make sure that we are all awake and present and ready uh, following up from last week's message. So as Pastor Tim mentioned, if you read chapter 10, At the end of each section, at the end of each clan, if you will, it said that each nation had their own peoples, their own languages, their own locations, all of these things. And then we get to chapter 11, verse 1, it says that the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And and we tend to think, all right, how is this, how does this work, right? Well, as Pastor Tim noted, chronologically, chapter 11 really predates chapter 10, And so one of the reasons that speculated that Moses, the author, would have done this is to put the surprise at the end. You know, when you're telling a story and it's like, hey, this this people is cursed, right? Remember the end of chapter 9? Let Canaan be cursed, let him be a servant to his brothers. And then Moses just continues like nothing bad has happened, right? Here's, Here's the lineage. And then we get to, wait, it's not all good. And and so as we look at this this morning, remember, this is predating chapter 10. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 25, we see that to Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. This is most likely an allusion to the Tower of Babel, meaning that in the days of Peleg, the nations were divided, and this is when the Tower of Babel would have occurred. Now, again, this is speculation, but the reason I bring this up is it's important for, to me, I think it's important to note that we are six generations removed from Noah. And the reason why I think it's important that we note that this is six generations removed from Noah comes off of the coattails of a a teacher, a professor that I heard a few years ago at a missions conference for college students and young adults. And as he was preaching on 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul writes to Timothy, what I have entrusted to you in the presence of faithful witnesses and trust to others also who are able to teach others. And we see this four-generational ministry here. And Richard Chen, the professor of a Christian university in Australia, as he's teaching this, he says, what is taught in the first generation can be assumed in the second generation before it's forgotten or confused in the third generation before it is denied in the fourth generation. And so if we're looking just at four generations of why we need to be faithful in teaching the gospel to our children, to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren, and so on, how much more important would it have been six generations from Noah? Remember, this is Canaan's line that we are looking at here in the beginning parts of chapter 11. Shem's line and Japheth's line, they have obeyed God's command to go and spread and disperse and fill the earth, to multiply in it and be fruitful in it. Canaan's line, relatively, is still within this area of the Middle East, of northern Africa. Now, 
For any of you who know anything about desert, unless you're looking for crude oil, there's not much there by way of natural resources. And I'm pretty sure in the days of Babel, there was no crude oil that they were really looking for. And so there's not much here, right? And, and they're stuck. They're, they're toiling in the desert, looking for food, looking for shelter. And, and remember that they come from a line that is cursed. Six generations before, Noah declares judgment on Canaan, the son of Ham, who sinned against his father. And so just keep that in the back of your mind as we look at this. When we are six generations removed from the flood, the the total worldwide destruction of all mankind due to his wickedness and sinfulness, and what is taught in the first generation can be assumed in the second, can be forgotten or confused in the third before it's denied in the fourth, and we are six generations looking at the line that is cursed. So before we get into our text, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather to to sing your praises, to read your word. And Father, I pray that you would speak through me. Let these be your words and not my own. And Father, may we just clear every distraction from our minds. May you speak through us. Speak through your word this morning, Father. Speak through me. I need your help. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. As we get started here, one of the things that Pastor Aaron has done very well when he preaches is to give a a main idea, a a point. What are we actually looking at in this passage? And I hope to do that for you this morning. And what I submit to you is the main idea of Genesis 11 is we are going to look at man's wicked desires versus God's sovereign will. Man's wicked desires versus God's sovereign will. So let us begin in verse 1 of chapter 11, the word of the Lord. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. As we begin looking at man's wicked desires, first and foremost, we see man's disobedience to God's command. Man's disobedience to God's command. Now, how does building a city, how is building a city disobedient to God? Well, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, As Noah and his family steps off the ark, God says to them, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again in verse 7, and you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, multiply in it. A city does the opposite. A city gathers people together. We we build walls, we build towers, we, we gather people together. With the wall, there is increased security. We, we see this as, even as a country, we have a, a border. There's commonality, there's unity within a city. People, especially in this day, all speaking the same language, accomplishing great things all together. But the great things that they are accomplishing is unified disobedience to God's command. Now, when we see let us make brick for stone and 
bitumen for mortar. Brick and mortar, that's pretty, pretty simple, right? Well, think about it. Before, before this, there was no permanent structure of any kind. If you were lucky, you had a tent, had some canvas maybe that you skinned a goat or a sheep or maybe a, an ox, and you had a, a tent, and there was no permanency in that. But now they have bricks. They have mortar. They, they have the ability to establish a permanent structure. Prior to this, they had no fear of the elements, for they trusted God would protect them. God held off rain graciously so that the, the canvas of the skins would not get wet for their tents. And, and now they're starting to question that trust. Maybe we do need something a little bit more permanent than a tent. That could blow away in the wind, or you know, if, if there's more rain, you know, we need something to protect against that. And so rather than going and dispersing across the entirety of the world, they gather together in opposition to God's command. Secondly, we see man's distrust in God's covenant. Again, in verse 4, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, we don't know much about the Tower of Babel, and as I was looking up different articles and different dictionary sources and everything like this for this message, I, I was actually surprised how little information we have about the actual Tower of Babel. We don't know its true size. We don't know exactly where it was. We know it was in the city that was Babel, later renamed Babylon, so we have the approximate location, the plain of Shinar. We don't know how exactly it was constructed, what it looked like. We don't know how long it took them to make. We don't know how completed it was when God came and saw their progress. But if we were to take the words of Herodotus, which is a, a famous Greek historian in the ancient world, traveled all over the ancient world, looking at various things and recording them and documenting them. So again, this is the word of a man, not the word of God. But if we were to take that as just a picture of what this tower would have looked like. He wrote about a great ziggurat in the, in the city of Babylon, a ziggurat being a, steer, a stepped or, or tiered structure, ultimately a temple, usually to pagan gods. But, but these, you might be familiar with like Incan architecture, Mayan architecture, things like that, where there are these tiers and, and there are steps leading up to the top. Herodotus writes of this great ziggurat in Babylon that was a furlong in length and breadth. And instead of having the usual three or four tiers, it had upwards of eight tiers, each 50 to 70 feet in height. Now, if, like me, at first you don't know what a furlong is, since we use the good old English meters, no, I'm sorry, not meters, no, as we use the good old imperial uh, feet and miles and yards and things. What a furlong is, it's about a quarter mile. So, so this structure, if this were to be the Tower of Babel, this structure is about 660 feet wide by 660 feet long, stretching up 560 feet high. For our modern architectural vernacular, that's 56 stories of brick and mortar. They didn't have cranes. They didn't have steel. It was bricks and mortar. 56 stories tall. Truly a tower whose top was in the heavens. 
So regardless, though, of, of what the exact details of the tower were, we can speculate that the reason is far greater than the actual tower itself. The reason why they built the tower could be twofold. First, the top is in the heavens. The heavens are typically referred to as the dwelling place of God. And so for the top of the tower to be in the heavens, it's like, all right, God, we're marching up to your doorstep because we want to overthrow you. It's not so that we can be with you. It's so that we can, in disobedience to you, we, we have been fruitful and multiplied and we don't need you anymore. Secondly, which I find a little bit more interesting, but secondly, they might not trust God to not flood the earth again. Remember, this is the sixth generation, which means that for six generations, this people has been told you are cursed. You are to be servants of your brothers. Oh, and by the way, the the God that cursed all of mankind by flooding the earth is the same God that Noah used to curse you. And, And so, I don't know about you, but if that's what I've been told for my entire life, I might be a little fearful that if a flood ever were to come again, I'd want to be as high up above it as possible. And we read in Genesis chapter 7 that the floodwaters covered the tops of the mountains. The mountains were actually 22 feet approximately deep underwater. And so, of course, you want to build a tower as high up as possible so that if the flood ever came again, you would be above the waters. Just a side note about this. We, we read that it's in the plains of Shinar. Now, plains are not mountains. It's, it's a valley, essentially. And, and I had to look up the, the altitude of Babylon just to see if I was absolutely crazy. The altitude of Babylon is two meters above sea level. That's two. So what these people did, and this is where I can't wrap my mind around quite, but what these people did was they said in their great thinking, in their great architectural planning, let's go to the lowest point and build the tallest tower. Now there are many different directions that we can go with this, right? We we can look at how Jerusalem, nicknamed the city on a hill, for the sole purpose that it is a city that is a light shining out to the nations of God's glory and his authority and his rule and his reign. And these people built it in a valley. I don't know about you, but if I was trying to get 22 feet above the highest mountain, I probably wouldn't start at ground zero. (laughs) I'd probably go to the top of the highest mountain and build 22 feet up from there. But again, just going to show man's plans, our plans are nothing compared to God's plans. Our best laid plans cannot compare to the sovereign will of God. The third note of man's wicked desires, we see devotion to self-glorification. Again, looking at verse four, lest, or excuse me, let us make a name for ourselves. This is the pride of life. Let us be exalted. Let us be known amongst the nations. It's interesting, too, why, right? We, we see, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, they're actually afraid that God's will is going to happen. Babel is a more unified, cohesive human effort to overthrow God. 
Now, this sin of self-glorification, this sin of pride, arguably has the biggest impact for these people, and even in our own lives today. It's arguably one of the most dangerous sins as we take God off of his throne and put us there instead. Again, thinking to the Tower of Babel, look at this technology that we have. Look at these, these bricks and this mortar. And you're sitting there thinking, technology? <laughs> I got more technology in my back pocket right now than these people had 50,000 years in the future. But because of the technology that they had, let's say, we did this. We did this. Because of the social unity, one city, one language, all unified together, even perhaps one family, all unified together, we don't need God. We have one another. The citizens of Babel are led to believe that they can be independent of God because they are dependent on what they have made for themselves. If we think for a moment that we can take another breath, that our heart can beat one more time, that we can take one more step, that we can do anything apart from God, we are sorely mistaken. Citizens of Babel are led to believe that they can be independent of God because they are dependent on what they have made for themselves. Take out the word Babel there. Put in whatever nation, whatever culture, whatever group of people that you want to. Citizens of blank anywhere in the world today are led to believe that they can be independent of God because they are dependent on what they have made for themselves. If we were to take the the logical argument that we were created beings, right? In in the beginning of Genesis, we see that God made the heavens and the earth. He created everything that was in it. He created mankind in his own image. We have been created by God. How can the creation be greater than the creator? Anything that we have made has been given to us from God. The knowledge to be able to do it, the the skills to be able to do it, the ability to be able to do anything is solely a gift from God. But the people of Babel lose sight of this. They devote themselves to their own glorification rather than God's glorification. As we transition into the second half of the beginning of chapter 11, in just the first five words of chapter 5, man's great achievement is put into perspective. And God came down. The Lord came down. Last week, my wife Michaela and I had the pleasure of going and traveling to visit family and we flew down to Tampa, Florida. And as we were flying in, it was, it was dark, it was nighttime. You saw the, the city and the lights spread out beneath you. It, it was a perfectly clear night. The pilot even made a, a distinct note to say from the cockpit, if you look to your right, you see the Gulf of Mexico. If you look to your left, you see the Atlantic Ocean. You could see the entire width of Florida laid out beneath the plane. Now, if you know anything about Florida, that is very uncharacteristic for them to have a clear night. But I was looking out the window as we were beginning our final descent into Tampa. And I leaned over to Michaela and I said, where's Tampa? Now, I didn't say this like, where geographically is Tampa located? I meant, I'm looking out the window. I'm supposed to see a great city that we are flying into, and I don't see it. 
If you've ever flown before, at 30,000 feet, everything looks flat. You don't see great cities because great cities are known for their skylines, for their skyscrapers, for the way that their towers go up and touch the sky. But from 30,000 feet, it is flat. And so if these people's goal, if the people had the goal to build a tower whose top is in the dwelling place of God, and God had to come down in order to see what they were doing, not just see the tower, but to see what they were even doing, how far, how far short did man's plans come to God's plan? Let's read verses 5 through 9 and see God's sovereign will. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. First thing that we see God do in, in accordance with his will is the dispersion of sin. Even against man's greatest efforts, the will of God was accomplished. people did not want to be scattered. They built a tower. They built a city. They raised themselves up lest they were dispersed. And God comes down and he disperses them. Sin, evil, wickedness, all of these things are going to be scattered before the holiness and the righteousness of God. As I mentioned before, Babel where we get the word Babylon. The word Babel actually appears almost 300 times throughout the Old Testament. All of them, except for this one time in Genesis 11, refer to the city of Babylon. Babylon, if you're familiar with your Old Testament history, was the nation that came and overthrew Jerusalem, taking the Israelites away and exiling them away from their homeland. Babylon isn't just another city that opposed God. It is the city that opposed God. And with its roots in Babel, we see that these people who were in Babel, these people who then grew up to be Babylonians, have been against God from the beginning. And yet even against man's greatest efforts, the will of God is accomplished. See God's dispersion of sin. Let's keep going and read verses 10 through 26. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. 
And Ebert lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years before uh, and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We see God's dispersion of sin. We also see his dedication to his people. Point number two of God's sovereign will, we see his dedication to his people. He preserves the line of Shem, blessing him according to the blessing of Noah. Now, as Pastor Tim alluded to last week, we see that Eber, the the Hebrew word for actually where the word Hebrew comes from, leading to the Hebrew people recognized under Abram, then Abraham, who then gave birth to Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, who's renamed Israel, and where we get the phrase Israelite. God's people, through Shem, through Eber, through Terah, through Abram, through Israel. Make no mistake, though, God is dedicated to his people for his glory, not for their glory. As I mentioned before, it would not make sense for the creation to be worshipped by the creator, for then the creation would be greater than the creator, which how can it be if it had to be created? The creator is greater, and therefore he is dedicated to his own worship and his own glory because he is greater than his creation. And if God created the heavens and the earth and the trees and the animals and the men and women that exist on this earth today, he's greater than everything. This doesn't mean that the creator does not love his creation, he does not worship his creation. His people, us, we were created to worship God because he is the greatest being, the greatest thing that we can ever worship. If God did not glorify himself, he would be unworthy of our glory. And so the fact that God does everything in accordance with his will for his glory means that he is worth the glory that we give to him. The blessing of Shem comes from Noah, his father. This blessing does not originate from God. However, because it was in line with God's will, because while Noah didn't know that Shem was going to give birth to a line that leads to Eber, which gives birth to to a line that leads to Terah and then Abram, and from there, the nation of Israel, while Noah didn't know that at the time of Shem's birth, God did. And so because it was in line with God's will, it came into fruition. This reminds me of Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Sometimes we get this backwards. Sometimes we like to think the Lord will give us the desires of our heart so that we may delight ourselves in him. No, the the blessing is the effect, not the cause. Trust, delight, commitment to the Lord is the cause of the blessing that we receive from our Heavenly Father. 
God is dedicated to his people because he is dedicated to his glory. Let's finish up our passage here in Genesis chapter 11. In verse 27, we read, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. You see God's sovereign will in the dispersion of sin and his dedication to his people, and thirdly, in the direction toward salvation. Again, as I mentioned before, as Eber leads to the Hebrew people and Abraham then leads to the Israelites, God is making a way through Shem, through Terah, through Abram. Before Shem stepped off the ark and had kids, before Noah even built the ark, before Eve gave birth to Seth after the death of her son, before God created the heavens and the earth, he knew what mankind would do. He knew that we would choose to rebel against him, and yet he chose to create mankind anyway. But through every step of the way, he is pointed to someone greater who is yet to come. In Genesis 1, we see an allusion to a greater Adam, who is made in the image of God perfectly in both likeness and character. In Genesis 2, we see an allusion to a greater garden than the Garden of Eden, one that we will never be cast out of because the one who has brought us there is our perfect ticket of admission. In Genesis 3, we see again a greater Adam, one who is without sin that will crush the head of the serpent, releasing mankind from the bondage of sin. In Genesis 4, we see a greater sacrifice than the first fruits of the harvest, a greater sacrifice who is yet to come, one that will be pleasing and acceptable to God so that he washes away our sins and remembers them no more. In Genesis 5, we see the continual phrase, and he died, pointing to Enoch, one who is like Enoch, who walked with God and was taken by God. In Genesis 6, in the middle of the corruption of mankind, there is one who found favor with God. In Genesis 7, we see the faith of Noah pointing to the faith of Jesus as he looks to the cross, not despising the shame so that we may be made right with God. In Genesis 8, we see the dove returning with an olive branch just as the king of peace himself will one day return and bring peace to this world. In Genesis 9, we see an established covenant pointing to the new covenant that would come through Christ where God puts his spirit within his people, writing his name and putting his word in their hearts. In Genesis 10, the spread of the nations, pointing to a day when Jesus returns and every tribe, every nation, every language, every people, every clan will be gathered together and acknowledge that the Lord alone is God. And in Genesis 11, we see that through everything that we have looked at, through each and every word, everything was pointing to Christ.
God isn't pointing to Adam or Noah or Terah or Abram. He is pointing to Christ, the one who was and is and is to come. The one predestined before the foundations of the world were laid to come to this earth, to live a perfect life, being put to death on a cross in our place so that we may be made right with God. Now, even if Jesus stayed in the tomb, that alone would be good news, amen? That we would be reconciled with God through the sacrifice of Christ. But God said, I'm not finished yet. Jesus, you did your job. You were finished. I'm not finished yet. Three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead, making him the conqueror of both sin and death so that every single person who has ever lived is alive now or will ever come into being in the future. All who confess that Jesus is Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved from an eternity separated from God. Trusting in Jesus for salvation, for forgiveness of sin so that they too may just enjoy the gift of grace that is life everlasting. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the direction towards salvation we see in Genesis 11. That is the future promise that Christ is greater than Abram. We have three promises that we see here, the first of which we have a greater Abram in Christ. Looking to the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3, verses 34 through 36, Luke kind of writes it from Jesus, from Joseph, all the way back to Adam. And in verses 34 through 36, we see that we pick up with the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, almost identical to what we read here in Genesis 11. God's sovereign will revealing the Christ through his earthly ancestors. We have a greater Abram in Christ. Secondly, we see the promise of the gathering of the saints in glory. As Pastor Tim read last week, we see a marvelous picture of the gathering of the saints in glory in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. The reverse picture of Genesis eleven eight, 8, when God scattered the nations and the languages and the peoples. And now in, in Revelation chapter 7, they are all unified once again, praising God for what he has done. And as John records, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God what man meant for evil, to gather together in unity in order to overthrow God. God worked for his good so that one day when Jesus returns, one day the nations will gather together, the languages will gather together, and they will be ushered into glory. All who confess Jesus is Lord so that they may worship him in this life and in the next. Third and finally, we see a future promise of the great destruction of Babylon. There's one more thing that we need to observe in this. Based on this passage in Genesis 11, there are three future promises that we see. We see the fulfillment of God's will in the future promise of Jesus who has come. 
We see the fulfillment of God's will and the dedication to his people by the gathering of the saints in glory. The final point here is a heavy point, but we must not neglect it. Babylon is the symbolic representation of mankind's wickedness throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation. The city itself was the manifestation of man's wicked desires, but it is also a symbol for all of man's wickedness. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, it says, Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. In chapter 16, verse 19, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The future promise here is both a warning and a promise. It is a warning to those who do not know God and do not confess Jesus as Lord. Their destruction is sure. God does not let any wicked deed go unpunished because he is perfectly just. This destruction awaits all who would follow the path of Babel, of Babylon, and desire wickedness over righteousness. However, this is a very important however. However, for all of those who believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is the son of God who lived, died, was buried, and resurrected, who has paid the penalty for all our sins. This is a promise to those of us who believe this, that there will be a day when there is no more wickedness, when there is no more brokenness, when there is no more sin and evil and rebellion against God, and we will be united with God as his people in his glory. So how do we live in light of the Tower of Babel? I just have one point of application for us, and it is broken into three parts, because I think in each part here that we look at, there's something to take away from. For us this morning, we need to flee from sin, submit to God, and hope in the gospel. Do not pursue our fleshly desires. Do not pursue our wickedness that is inherent to us thanks to Adam and the fall but instead trust God's will, his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence, and be obedient to his will. As we see in the Tower of Babel, it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. This is the direction of God's will. It's going to happen. No matter how much we might try and and push it away, no matter how much we might try and get in the way of it, his will is sovereign. If God can confuse languages and disperse people according to his command— his will will happen. We need to have faith that the promises that God has made for his people in the future will come into fruition. And when we talk about hoping in the gospel, this doesn't mean believing in Christ and then sitting back and and just waiting for Christ's return or when he brings us home. This means going and loving our neighbors enough to tell them and share the hope of Christ that is within us so that they too may understand their great need for salvation because of their own wickedness. Maybe you're here today and this is the first time that you have ever heard the gospel, that you have ever heard that you have sinned against God, that you have disobeyed him and and rebelled against him. Friend, I have good news for you. 
Jesus paid for it on the cross. He has made a way out of your brokenness, out of your death, and has made the way into new eternal life. He has taken the charges that were against each and every one of us. He has nailed them to the cross as a receipt for payment that we may have eternal life. Today is the day of salvation. Salvation that is for all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That is the promise of the gospel. And as Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. Is not of our own doing, it is a gift from God, not a result of works. No matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are now, no one is too far gone. No one is not worth saving. All who confess and believe and repent of their sins, trusting Jesus as Lord of their life, will be saved. Wherever you are in life, Let the Tower of Babel be a reminder for us to flee from sin, submit to God, and hope in the gospel. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your mercies that are new each and every morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together and to be reminded of the goodness of your glory, the holiness of your character. But Father, we also gather to remind ourselves that just as the people in Babel took you off of the throne of their hearts and put themselves there, we are tempted to do the same. Lord, let that not be so. Father, may you be glorified first and foremost in our lives for all things because you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our adoration. Father, I pray that you would be with us through the remainder of our time, that we would continue to glorify you in all of our lives, in all that we do, giving you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory, because you are worthy of it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. The worship team is going to come back up and play one more song, and I pray that as they sing, you reflect. Bill's already done a few different things this morning, so I figured, why not one more? As you reflect, what sin do you need to flee? Where does your faith need to increase in God's will? Who do you need to share the gospel with even today? As they sing, you reflect. Maybe you just need to pray. I would encourage you to do so. If you need someone to pray with you, again, I know we don't normally do this, but I will be down front. If you just need prayer this morning, I'd be happy. It would be a privilege to pray with you. I'd encourage you, if you don't want to come to the front, I don't blame you. But find an elder. Find a deacon. Find someone even who brought you here this morning to pray with. I am sure that they would love to pray with you. As they sing, you reflect.